if you have a Bible with you, please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Today's text for study will be the entire chapter, but I'm just going to read for us uh, just the first six verses. And then I'm going to pray, ask for the Lord's blessing on uh, the preaching of his word, and then we will uh, get to work. So 1 Samuel 21. Starting in verse 1 through verse 6, and I'll be reading now the ESV this morning. So please hear the words of the Lord. So the scripture says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and which with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young man for such and such a place. Now then, whatever you do have in hand, give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand. But there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there is no bread there but the bread of presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that is taken away. Okay, so that's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. And thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, who through uh, the power of the Spirit opens up uh, your holy word. And uh, Lord, thank you that you have been Speak uh, to us through your word through the folly of preaching. And so, Lord, I pray that you would indeed speak in this time. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. So this morning, from our text, I want to focus on perhaps the strongest emotion that we can feel as mankind, an emotion that can be so strong that it actually can drive every decision that we make, which is the emotion of, of fear. So now the emotion of fear in itself, it can actually be a good, holy emotion. Uh, as mankind, we've been created to fear God in terms of having like a healthy respect, reverence, a deep sense of awe of who God is. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the author came to this conclusion of life, that in the end of matter, all, uh, all has been heard. It says, fear God and keep his commandments. But this is the whole duty of man. The book of Proverbs actually talks a lot about fear. It tells us that the fear of God is actually the beginning of all wisdom. So, so as mankind, it's actually right for us to have fear as it relates to having a right, healthy, holy fear, holy reverence of God. Going a little further, at times I think fear actually is, serves like a warning light in our lives that God is using to keep us away from danger. Uh, my favorite of the Narnia books is A Horse and His Boy, if you read that one. And my favorite part of that book is when Aslan tells the boy that in a sense he used fear to move him away from danger. So fear in itself is not necessarily wrong. However, as we know as mankind, because of sin, often what we do is we twist that which is right, holy, and healthy and make it something far different from what God intended to be. And this is certainly true when it comes to our fears. So rather than fearing God, by letting the fear of God drive every decision that we make because of sin, because of brokenness, because of maybe pain, fear hijacks. Uh, our, our fears are get hijacked in ways that takes us places that tragically lead us to uh, many awful places, um, places away from God, where we can start to like doubt God, doubt his goodness, rather than trusting in him. You know, this week... Just like just a couple of minutes, just write down a fear, a few fears that came to the top of my mind. I started thinking about that. They can just really hijack it in life. Let me just give you those. I wonder how many of these will resonate with you. 
Uh, we can have like maybe a fear of the past, perhaps that one day will catch up with us as the past haunts us. We have maybe a fear of the future, where we're crippled that might come our way, a uh, fear of death, a uh, fear of missing out, which is something that's, I think, struggled a lot in our society. Uh, we have fear of maybe being exposed, uh, fear of loss, fear of abandonment, uh, fear of like loss of loved ones, uh, maybe particularly for those who have children, maybe you're really fearful what might happen to them. Uh, we have fear of change, fear of the unknown, uh, fear of failure, which maybe for our students as you enter into finals week. Uh, we have a fear of making like wrong decisions. Uh, we have a fear of maybe quietness, which is I think why we're like, constantly trying to like fill our thoughts with like podcasts or reading stuff online. We're just so afraid of just being quiet. We have fear of man, which can be fleshed out in so many ways. And I think if we're honest, the fear of man probably guides way too many of our life's decisions that we actually want to admit. And because we live with all these different fears that come our way, so rather than using these fears to drive us to trust in the Lord, I think we try to cope with these fears in other ways that actually drive us away from God. So same thing, I wrote down maybe a few ways that maybe we try to do that this week. Perhaps we try to get away from our fears by putting like noise-canceling headphones on in life. We try to block out all of our fears. We just don't want to deal with them. Perhaps we try to deal with our fears uh, by maybe putting ourselves in some type of safety bubble where we become more and more isolated from the world around us, which is a temptation. Perhaps we try to get away from our fears by trying to control and manipulate everyone and everything around us, which I do think is part of the story of Saul that we've had in our study of 1 Samuel. Like he, he was so afraid what would happen if he lost his kingdom. That he tried to control and manipulate like everything as an attempt to keep his fears from being realized. If we don't do the things, maybe we put our, our, our fears, we just like actually put us on the run, where we're doing everything we can to get away from our fears, which does actually bring us back to our, our text of study today, which is a text I think is filled with fear, where the central character of this passage, David, in his fear is now on the run. Now, just a little bit of review to help us remember where we left off, why David was afraid, why he's on the run. This is because of legitimate reasons. Right? He, he legitimately had like warning lights going off in his head and in his heart because King Saul was literally trying to kill him. Where multiple times in multiple ways, Saul was actually aggressively trying to end David's life. Where we left off in our text last week, it became abundantly clear for David that Saul was not going to stop in his attempts to kill him until he completed the job. So as you may remember, our text last week, it ended with David and his best friend, a man named Jonathan, who also happened to be David Saul, had a tearful goodbye, and Jonathan headed back home, and David went on the run. He said again, because of legitimate reasons. Okay, so that's a simple review. Look back with me in our text, verse 1. We're going to work through the passage. If you have a Bible, let's just keep them open. We're going to work through verse by verse. So we see that as David fled by the end of last week's chapter, he did so by fleeing to a place in our text today, in verse 1, to a place called Nob, to be near Ahimelech the priest. Okay, now let me point out a few things here. So first, at least for me, it's a little bit interesting, at least up front, to think about like David, why he fled to Nob, not to Ramah. So this is a place where David maybe fled to in the past, remember that, to get away from Saul. You see this in chapter 19. And David fled there to Ramah because that's where you could find Samuel, the great prophet and priest, who was used by God to protect David from Saul. So at least it's a little interesting to me why this time David didn't go back to the same place, back to Samuel. Instead, he went to Nob. No, it's possible to know the reasoning, but I wonder perhaps he wondered or worried that Saul had like maybe men along the route towards Samuel, so he had to find a different uh, place to go, maybe a detour to find a new safety, a uh, place to find uh, a safety, a new location, so hard to know that. Second, the exact location of Nob is also kind of hard to know at this point, but scholars believe that it was maybe like two miles northeast of Jerusalem, two and a half 
uh, miles southeast of Gibeah, which is where Saul was located, which means David really did not get that far from where he fled at the end of chapter 21. So, so even running by foot, this is only like maybe like a 15 to 20 minute of uh, a, a, a place away from where Saul was. So he's still fairly close here to Saul, which is the third thing that I want to mention. It relates to why perhaps he only went two, two and a half miles away rather than like really getting out of Dodge. Third thing is that the tabernacle, which hosted the Ark of God, is located in Nob. And the reason we conclude that is what we see in verse 1 is Amalek was the priest and he was there. In chapter 22, when we get there, we see that he wasn't the only priest in this location, but there's actually a large group of priests who are located there who were responsible for ministering before the Ark of God. And most importantly, we know that the Ark was located in this region because in verse 6 of our text, we see that while in this location, David ate from the bread, uh, the bread of presence, which is a meal connected to the Ark of God. So here, as David is on the run again, he ran where the Old Testament presence of God was most clearly found, to the Ark of God, located in Nob. And I do think that's significant for us that we return to later at the end of the, our time here. So even though maybe it's a little surprising that David didn't run to Samuel, we do need to understand that the ark was in Nob, so it does, in a sense, make sense. Verse 1. So David fearfully came to this location as he was before the priest. We see that David is not the only one who had fear in this scene. As we see that as David arrived, he did so much to the fear of Ahimelech. So our text tells us that the priest came out and met David with trembling. Like he was so filled with fear that his body was like visibly shaking. And I actually think this is even a legitimate fear here for the priest. So just remember in previous chapters, Saul put a very public hit on David's life. And because David is such a popular figure because of his military conquest, starting with his victory over Goliath, the giant, there's no doubt that this very public hit that Saul put on David's life, this would have been well known throughout all of Israel. So here in the text, as David shows up, understandably, the priest is afraid. He's a little scared here. This is a very difficult situation for him to be in. But no doubt the priest is afraid how Saul might respond if he showed any type of kindness towards David. Which, by the way, once again, chapter 22, when we get there, those are legitimate fears. As Saul went scorched earth on all the priests when he learned how they helped David. Text, verse 1, as the priest came out to David, he did so, he's trembling, he did so trying to figure out, like, why was David there? So the text, Ahimelech asked David, not only why was he there, but like, hey, David, why are you here alone? Why is there no one with you? And the priest asked these particular questions because it was suspicious for David, a very public figure, important military leader, like, to be there alone. It would have been natural for David to travel with some type of entourage, especially to come to this important site like this. It's in the text, David. Why, why, why alone? Where's everyone else? This question here, this is such a good penetrating question, required David to take some quick thinking on his part to try to give an answer to satisfy. So we see in verse 2, if you want to look there, he answered back with some real vague answer. Real kind of vague deception, I actually think. By telling the priest, oh yeah, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm here alone because the king actually gave me a secret mission. And let me mention here, there's some think the king that David is referring to here is actually the Lord. I think the actual more natural reading is that this actually is referring to Saul. So David to the priest, the king gave me this secret mission, and he told me that I was not to let anyone know about the matter at hand, or why I was sent to you, or what I was charged to do, or the appointment that I made with the young man at such and such a place. Priest, I would love to tell you why I'm here, why I'm here alone, but you have to understand that because of the king, I've actually been sworn to secrecy. Right? He's a little deceptive here. 
Hard to know the motives why David respond vaguely with deception rather than answering back with honest truth why he was on the run. Perhaps David responded this way as an attempt maybe to protect the priest. Okay, Saul figured out why, uh, uh, okay, Saul actually figured out that David is in his location. So by not telling the priest the honest truth, perhaps David's thinking, like, maybe I can pre protect the priest from having to cover up for me, which is possible. That's why maybe he was vague with the priest. However, at least for me, I think David is actually is being deceptive here. He's, he's not being forthright. He's not telling the truth because he actually had a lack of trust. Where in his fear, David struggled to trust anyone, even the priest here with this situation at hand. And I actually think we saw some of this reality of David having these trust issues with others in our text last week. Remember how David is struggling to trust even his most trusted friend, Jonathan? So over and over again in chapter 20, Jonathan had to continue to express his commitment towards David, to their friendship, to the covenant that he made. So again, it's hard to know the motives here, why David is deceptive, at least for me. I think this is David's fears. His fears that made him hard to trust anyone. Because of the trust issues, I don't think David here in the scene was trying to protect the priest. Rather, I think he's trying to protect himself. You know, as much as the model of godliness that David has been for us so far in our study, I think this actually is a model of ungodliness. I think in the end, David's fears were hijacked in ways that he ended up putting the priest in a very vulnerable position that I do think had a play in the tragedy in chapter 22 when we get there. Back to our text, verse 3. As David gave his answer to the priest, it seemed to satisfy the priest and why he was there alone. So we see in the passage that they moved to a different part of a conversation, and they changed gears into talking about something else, which involved David now asking the priest a very practical question. In our text, hey priest, uh, what do you have to eat? What do you have in the fridge? What do you have in the cupboards? Uh, because of the secret mission, I haven't been able to get a bite for a while, so I'm, so I'm here, I'm pretty hungry. And in the text, I was hoping that you could maybe give us like five loaves of bread, or really whatever you have here. I'll eat any food that you have to spare. As David asked this request to the priest, he learned there was a problem. In verse four, the priest had no common bread. There's no regular, normal bread for the priest to offer to David. Like he didn't have five loaves. I mean, he didn't have a single loaf. Nothing. In fact, our text tells us the only bread on hand was the holy bread that was for the young men to eat who have kept themselves from women. Now, to play a pause again, the holy bread, this is a reference to the bread that was placed before the ark. As the bread is placed before the ark, the young men who were the priests were the ones who were eligible to eat the holy bread, providing that they kept themselves from young women. This is part of like a purification process necessary to eat this meal. And this meal that was placed before the ark represents a meal of fellowship between God and his people. So this is not just any type of normal, common bread. In fact, far from it. This is holy bread. This is bread that's distinct from all other bread. So verse 5, as David learned about his limited food options, we see he starts to make his case and why he actually is eligible to eat of this holy bread. And I think here it's safe to assume that like David, he's incredibly hungry here at this scene. So remember back the previous chapter? How for three days he was away from Saul, Saul's court, during the feast that was taking place during the new moon. So I'm sure it's probably been a few days since David last ate. And those are very long, stressful, draining days on the run, which would have only added to his hunger. So in his hunger, David responds back to the priest with a plea by telling him, oh yes, it really is important for the priest to eat this meal, meaning these purification requirements by abstaining from physical relations with the women. Uh, yes, I concur. I agree. This is actually really important. 
uh, Emma, uh, but did you know that the one thing that we always do when we're in an exhibition, like I am right now, is that we actually keep women from us? Certainly by the set standard, I want you to know that I, I too am clean. Furthermore, let me add, I heard about a good thing that you've done in the past. How at times you made provisions for the vessels, the young military men, who you considered to be holy to eat the bread, when they too were on military journeys. And you even let them do this, even when they're on like normal, ordinary journeys, like you'd let them eat the bread. So I could ask, like, so how much more holy are things for me today as I come to you on this most important, most special matter the king has set me on? So really, with all you just said, in terms of being eligible to eat the bread, Ahimelech, I think you would agree that I meet the standards set before you. I, I check the boxes. So here is David rationalized with the priest. We see the priest agreed with David's logic. So in verse 6, you want to take your eyes there. He went over to the holy bread and gave it to David to eat. So the text once again tells us this bread was the only bread in sight. Right? No normal bread. Only the holy bread, the bread of presence, which is the bread that our text tells us was removed each day before the Lord and uh, replaced with fresh hot bread. Now, if we were to stop here, let me mention a few things. So first, Jesus actually pointed to this text when teaching uh, to these people in the Gospels on the importance of showing mercy, which is what the priest is showing David here on this scene. Jesus commended the priest for understanding that mercy was a far greater value than rigidly keeping a ceremonial law as it related to the Sabbath, which is a teaching that Jesus actually used to condemn religious leaders of the day who were so concerned by the letter of the law they completely missed out of the heart of the law, which we know is a temptation that we all can fall into. Right? We get so hyper-focused on rigidly keeping or enforcing a rule or a law that we do so in ways that we actually stop showing love and mercy towards others, which is the heart of the law. As mentioned, Jesus actually was very favorable of the priest for what he did here for David. Second, aside to the context of this scene here, for David, I'm sure this had to be an encouraging time for him, where maybe some of his fears are now finally starting to subside a little bit. I mean, after all, think about the evidence of grace in his life. His good friend Jonathan came through for him to help David successfully flee from Saul. Uh, David was actually able to get to Nob, where the presence of God was located, where the priests were there to minister to him. And now David was just able to fill his stomach with bread. So in our text, in this scene, verses 1 through 6, this had to be an encouraging, uplifting time for David. Whereas mentioned, some of his fears were maybe starting to subside, maybe just a little. However, as we keep going in our text today, any feeling of encouragement that David was starting to experience here didn't last long. Those, once again, were with us last week, the roller coaster theme that was in our sermon from our pastors last week, verse 7. Things started to go down quickly here for David. We see in the text that it also is a certain man who happened to be present at Nob that day. A certain man that our text tells us one of Saul's servants who was detained before the Lord. Now, we don't know why the servant of the Lord is detained at the tabernacle. It seems likely because of some type of sin, maybe some type of added penance he had to do that was keeping him detained. We don't know that information, but we do know the servant's name. We see in the text was Doeg. And we see that he was an Edomite. Now, this was a rival of Israel that warred against Israel and actually was defeated by them in 14, verse 47. So this man who was at the tabernacle, this was not a man who was part of Israel. He probably was a captured person who became a spoil of war, put into the king's servants, uh, king's servants which I do think is interesting, interesting information. Then to make it more interesting, we see in the text that Doeg wasn't just a, a normal servant of Saul, but we see that he was Saul's chief herdman. So he had a major role, perhaps even put in Saul's inner circle. 
And this is a role that would have made him, you know, very prominent. Someone that had been well known. So here he is. He's at the scene. He's being detained at Nob. And it seems clear that these two men had their paths crossed. Because this Doeg was in Saul's inner circle, no doubt Saul or David recognized him, just as Doeg recognized David. And as these two men spotted each other, I'm sure this caused fear once again to flood the heart of David. Because David rightly would assume that Doeg would make a short trip back home to tell Saul this news, that he found David. Let's back in our text, verse 8. We see David go back to the priest for yet another request. Request that he would be provided with something to protect himself, whether it be a spear or a sword. David just needed something to be able to fight off the Edomite. In our text, David needed this weapon because in his haste to flee in chapter 20, he wasn't able to grab a sword or any type of weapon. So he goes to the priest to see what might be on hand. Time in verse 8 of our text. As David came to, this, uh, came to the priest to give this request, once again, the priest did not have a lot to offer to David. He didn't have like a chest of weapons just sitting there to be used at a moment's notice. In fact, the only thing the priest had to offer David was a sword of Goliath, the Philistine. We see in the end of chapter 17 that this is a sword that David took from the battle after he used this very sword to cut off Goliath's head. So David took this sword from the battle scene as a spoil of war that he offered up to the Lord as a tribute, as a way of trying to honor the Lord, who in the end was the one who struck down the giant man in the valley of Elah. So in the text, the priest to David. David, the only thing we have here is this sword of Goliath. And really, that's the only thing we can offer you. And if you want it, you know what? It's yours. And in fact, you can actually find it sitting over there behind the ephod. Uh, you'll see it, it's, it's wrapped up in cloth. And David heard this news, that this is the only sword on sight. This wasn't a disappointment to him, because this was a great sword to have. In chapter 17, it said this was like the best sword money could buy. So in his text, as David hears that this sword is on sight, he goes to the priest. Oh, that sword? Yes, I will absolutely take that sword. There, there is none like it. Please give it to me. Please, yes, I will happily take it. However, even though David is now in possession of this pride sword, he knew there is no way that he's going to be able to fend off a host of military men that Saul surely was going to send to the site once he got the report from Doeg. So we keep going to the text. In his fears, we see David had to go back on the run. Surprisingly, in verse 10, as David went on the run, the place that he rose and fled to, with the hopes of getting away from Saul, the text tells us with Gath, and to King Ashish, who is more, most likely more like a ruler of the region. Now, this is surprising that David went here. In fact, I don't know if surprising is a strong enough word. It's shocking that David went here, because Gath, this is one of the most important cities of the Philistines, David's great military rival. In fact, you may remember Gath. That's where Goliath was from. I mean, think how bad things must have been for David here. His fears were so intense. He got so twisted around in his own head. The place David felt most safe to run was right to his hated enemies. And honestly, I would think of all the places in the Philistine region that had the most hatred towards David, who most would have loved to see David killed, it would have been Gath, the home of Goliath, the great hero, the hero that David killed. He had to say it again in his fears. 
that's where David ran. As David ran to Gath in the text. It appears that maybe David thought like somehow he can like maybe blend in with others, not be noticed. Which I actually think that is actually a pretty delusional thought itself. Once again, back to chapter 17 and that scene of David and Goliath. Right? There would have been men present in the Philistine camps who were also from Gath. They would have witnessed David strike down their great hero in ways that they would not have been able to forget David's face. So at least to me, this is pretty delusional to think that David could go to his hated enemies and somehow blend in. Our text, this delusional thought was quickly exposed. We see this in verse 11. The servants, the servants of Achish looked at David and began to recognize him. Hey, that guy over there, you see him, that guy. I think that's the one who killed Goliath. I'm sure of it. There's no way I could ever forget that ruddy-faced young man. And as the servants began to recognize David, we've seen the text, naturally went to the king to tell him the incredible, unbelievable news. Hey, king, you see that man over there? Yeah, the ruddy one, him. Is that not David? You know, the king of the land? You know, the very David who Israel sings and dances before, they sing out their favorite chorus, that Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? We're almost certain that is him. Yeah, that one standing right over there. And the servants began to point out David to the king. We see in verse 12 that David now somehow hears about this conversation. And as he hears about the words of being said about him, it's like cuts to his heart. No doubt, fears began to grow and multiply for David. The point that David tell, or the text tells us that David now becomes very much afraid of Ashesh. Legitimate fears. Right? Legitimate warning lights going off in his head. I mean, just think what the king would do if he was able to capture David. I mean, can you imagine here how awful this had to be for David with his fears? His mind and his heart would have to be overflowing with worry, fear, anxiety. Verse 13. As the words the servant made their way to David, he realized that he has to come up with a plan, a plan that he needed to implement, like, right away. And as he's trying to put the plan in place, he realized like, there's no way he could, like, flee from the scene because any attempt to flee, this probably only further exposed him. So what he decided to do, we see in the passage, that he decides to put on his acting hat. And he starts to, like, drastically change his behavior in ways that he now begins to pretend that he was, like, insane. So the servants came over to him put their hands on him to physically bring him over to the king for a closer look, for questioning. We see that David began to make marks on the doors of the gate, you know, probably some type of nonsensical writings. He begins to let, like, spittle run down his beard, so he's, like, foaming at the mouth. Like, there's no doubt everything David could think of to help him look like he was insane, gone mad, he's doing here. And as David changes his behavior, clearly he does a convincing job. Because in verse 14, as the servants brought David to Ashes, he said to them, Hey guys, what is this? What are you doing here? So you're telling me that this is the mighty David, the one who struck down Goliath, this one who's been an absolute thorn in our side, this guy right here, this guy who can't even complete a full sentence, this one who's like literally foaming at the mouth. You're telling me this is David. You're idiots. This is not David. This is a madman. Why would you bring this man to me? This is a waste of my time. Back in verse 14, guys, is this some type of joke? Where you think I'm lacking madmen in my court? Which I think here, this is like a shot at the servants. Where the king implied that they're acting like madmen who are insane. 
to bring this foaming mouth individual before him to say that this is David, the king, the servants? Why would you bring this fellow to act like this in my presence? Explain to me why this is a good idea, why this is worth my time. Let him go. Let him go before whatever he has starts to spread around my court. And with that, based on what we see in the opening verse of chapter 22, David is released, where he goes back on the run, where he finds refuge in a cave. And that ends our text for study of the day. It's absolutely dripping with fear. So with that being said, what might we learn from this passage when it comes to our own fears? So as I mentioned at the start, this is perhaps the strongest emotion that we can feel as mankind. An emotion that when it's in the right place, when we fear God, this is the emotion that actually serves us like the best possible way. However, when our fears are in the wrong place, we start to fear something, anything more than God, always leads us to awful places. So that being said, I just have a few things from our text I want to point out, the hopes that helps us when we think about our own fears, whatever those fears may be. So first, I think we see in our text that our fears are often based on some type of true reality or maybe in potential true reality. Right? There, there actually are true warning lights that are out there for us. No, not always. Sometimes our fears are completely irrational, but often I think our fears do have true realities or true potential realities tied to them. They're not always completely delusional. Right? This is actually one of the realities that we live in in a Genesis 3 world that's broken with sin. There, there are legitimate things out there to fear. The problem that we have with our fears, as mentioned earlier, they hijack us in such a way that legitimate fears like completely overtake us. In ways that we start to like obsess over them. To the point that whatever the thing is that we fear becomes greater than our fear of God and the truth of God as he reveals to us in his word. Back to the text, David's fears, they had truth tied to them. It's true. It was really true. Saul was seeking to kill David. It was true. Saul was not going to stop until he did. True fears. Likewise, it was true. If David was exposed and caught in Gath, the king there would have brought him great harm. That was true. That was not delusional. I think even the fear of the priest in the text, the fear of what Saul would do to him if he helped David, that was a true fear. In fact, so true, one last time, chapter 22 shows us how true that was. I think this is one of the reasons why we can feel so deeply when it comes to our fears. Because often there is truth tied to them. Let's say it again. We just can't let these truths or potential truths consume us. We can't obsess over them in such a way that we push about the truth about God off to the side. Friends, the truth of God, the truth of fearing God, must outweigh whatever other thing is that might come our way that we could be afraid of. Second, our fears can lead us to making foolish decisions. So we're going to talk about this more in just a second. But when fears come our way, our response is to, to let those fears drive us to the Lord, to further trust in him, to further trust in his word, to trust, like as the song sings that we love to sing here, that he will hold us fast even through our darkest and deepest fears. However, prior to often that we probably want to admit, when we feel, uh, feel fear filling up in our hearts, like we run to far many other things other than the Lord with the hopes that they'll be our present help in our times of trouble, right? including all the things that I mentioned at the start of the sermon. Rather than using our fears to run to the Lord, we often run to other places, like foolishly thinking that somehow they will help us, 
foolish conclusion, that's what's best for us. Which I do think is true of David in his text. Think of his fears. They foolishly took him away from the ark of God. They took him to maybe the worst place possible for him, outside of like walking right into Saul's court. They were so twisted around. He ends up in Gath, the home turf of his enemies, as if that is where he'd find safety in his trouble. Listen, church, when we're consumed with fears, let's be honest with ourselves. We can go and make some crazy decisions. We can be very unrational when we get consumed by fears. We can put ourselves in great harm, great risk. Even though, ironically, we try to make this decision to try to get away from harm. So be careful with our fears. If we don't fear the Lord, we're just going to end up in some really dark, delusional, scary places. So this is actually the third thing I want to mention here. Our fears are far worse when we are alone. Because when we're alone, especially when we're alone in our fears, we just don't come up with great conclusions. That's when we make, it's most easy for us to make sinful, foolish decisions. It's like when we're isolated. Not for David, the situation is him. Put him physically alone. Where he's isolated, on the run. And I don't think this was like David's choice. But this was his reality. In our text, I also don't think that's the only place that he was alone. Not just physically alone. I think our text points to this. He was actually emotionally alone as well. Emotionally isolated. Where in his fears, he tried to keep others at a safe emotional distance from him. And I think we see that in his interaction with the priest. When the text was so merciful, as mentioned, even the Lord Jesus recognized him centuries later as an example of one who shows mercy. However, for David, he was so filled with fear, emotionally, he could not even trust even the priest here. He couldn't trust him in ways that he could maybe be forthright and honest about the situation at hand. David's fears left him completely isolated, and not just physically, but emotionally. In church, that's never a good thing. This is one of the reasons why, one of the many reasons why, that we hope that all of us stay connected to each other so we can speak in each other's lives, particularly into the fears of our lives. Friends, don't let your fears bottle you up in isolation. As hard as it might be, let others into the fight to help you fight against fear. In fact, this morning, if you know that in your own fears, that you've been living in your own isolation, I'm going to invite you as hard as this is going to be. As hard as it's going to be, because maybe like David, you're struggling to trust people as well. To let people into your life. To let people in so they can help you. To let people in, because in the end, you trust that the Lord is right when he tells us that we haven't been designed or instructed to live alone. Like we've we've been designed to live in ways that we let others into our life even into our fears. This is the last thing I want to say here this morning, which is really how we fight our fear. So we, we fight against fear with trust. So, so trust is the great antidote to fear, where we trust in the Lord. Now let me read you some words here from Psalm 56. So this is actually linked to our passage today. So David actually wrote these words in response when, when he was on the run in Gath. So listen to these words. This is Psalm 56. It says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me, which was true. 
all day long, an attacker oppresses me, which is also true. My enemies trample me all day long, for many attack me proudly. That's what he says here. When am I afraid? I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. Now in our text today, I don't think David was perfect an example as he sought to fight against fear with trust. But I do think he gives us two great examples for us to follow as fears come our way, which is how I want to end. So first, I think he gives a good example at the start of the passage. A great model, a great example to follow. In his fears, it drove him to find refuge in the presence of God, where the fullness of God is most commonly found in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, located in Nob. That's the right place to be, in the presence of God. Second, in the psalm I just read, David's fear drove him to worship the Lord through song. As he put his trust in the Lord and in the Lord's word that he's given to his people. So friends, when you and I, when we're filled up with fears, whatever our fears may be, may we do the same. When fears come our way, may we too run to the presence of the Lord and to worship him, trusting in his word. But for us today, will not take us to Nob, to the tabernacle. Because no, that's not where the fullness of God is now found. Rather, if we're going to run to the Lord to worship the Lord. We must run where the fullness of God is found, which is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who became flesh, who in his great love feared God in such a way that he did all that God set before him according to the eternal plan. Where, in the, Lord, where the Lord Jesus Christ even went to the truest and most fearful reality, where the Lord Jesus laid down his life for his people on the cross to take on the judgment of our sin, the wrath of God as it fell on Jesus instead of his people, only to rise again on the third day. Friends, that's where we run and trust. And as we run and trust in Jesus, we remember because he died for us, because he died for his people, we know that we're loved. We are perfectly loved. We are loved with the love that Scripture tells us, the love that casts out all of our fears. When we run to Jesus, as we remember that not only did he die, but that he rose again, we know that indeed he's greater than anything this life might fearfully throw at us. Like, he is risen. We can trust in him because he is greater. And we trust because he died and rose again that one day when he returns, he will fully push away all of our fears. And when he pushes away all of our fears, guess what? We get to dine with him. We get to eat a much better meal than the holy bread that was found at the ark. Because we get to dine with him at the marriage supper of the lamb in perfect peace, which is a meal that he's preparing for us even right now. So yes, we live in a world of fears. Yes, many of the fears, in a sense, are legitimate. There can be real fears. But yes, we can trust in the Lord always. We can trust in him by helping each other to fight through our fears. We can help each other by pointing us to Jesus who through the promise of the Spirit promises to be with us, be our present help in whatever trouble we're facing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Lord, I do pray you help us to trust in Jesus today.
particularly with our fears that we may have. And uh, Lord, I pray that today that the perfect love of Jesus would cast out all fears, pushing them all aside. And uh, Lord, I do pray that in the end we fear you more than anything else. Praise on Jesus' name. Amen.